0: Hey everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a bestselling author, and he's also my dad.
1: So dad, how are you doing today? I am thoroughly psyched, bouncing up and down in my chair to talk about stress (laughs) and how to become more resilient with my good friend and a world-class expert that I've learned a ton from, Dr. Alyssa Eppel.
0: Dr. Eppel is a psychologist, a best-selling author, and a professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research focuses on stress, well-being, and optimal aging. And she's the best-selling co-author of The Telomere Effect, and her newest book is The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. So, Alyssa, thanks for joining us today. How are you?
2: Great. Thank you, Forrest. I'm thrilled to be here having a conversation with both of you and with your amazing audience.
1: We have this notion like, oh, stress is bad. Okay, but it's actually more nuanced, than that. There are different kinds of stresses. There are even kinds of brief stressors and brief experiences of stress that your research has found are actually beneficial for us. So maybe a way into this is if you could just unpack what is good stress, (laughs) what is bad stress, what is chronic stress, and what are some of its effects, and just sort of set the table for us here. Would that be okay?
2: Let's start from the most fundamental distinction about stress, which is toxic stress, which is only bad for us, chronic ongoing adversity when we don't have the resources, we don't have breaks, we don't have recovery, and positive stress, which I also call the scientific name hormetic stress, small bursts of stress that are manageable, that actually are great for us. They're great for growth, performance, and even our cells they have an anti-aging function to them. So they're very different. Now when we talk about stress, I have not met someone that says I don't have a problem with stress. I'm very low stress. <laughs> we are just wired to have our negativity bias and to be focusing on where's the threat. And so it's tempering that tendency that is part of the challenge in creating an ability to really live well with stress, to stress better to stress in a way where we can actually see how good it is for us and how our body is trying to serve us in the moment. And belief of a positive stress mindset, focusing on the benefits of stress and its function, actually has a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when we focus on, okay, stress is helping me, right now my body is excited. Literally, I mean it. Like I most definitely am not at my rest, relaxed state because I – Want to, I want to perform well in this moment, which means just share genuinely. And so I need some stress. I need some energy. And my body's doing that for me. So when we have the opposite, I'm just, I'm going to say the wrong thing. There's so much at stake. I don't have what it takes. That is a self-fulfilling prophecy to create this negative toxic stress response with cortisol and poor focus because we're having this kind of narrow... Narrowing of our attention toward threat.
1: So it seems to me, Alyssa, in what you're saying there, that there's a difference between stressors and stress. And one of my pet peeves is the degree to which people often conflate the two and equate the two. In other words, there are stressors in the world. There is rush hour traffic. There is being on the spot in an interview, like you've alluded to a moment ago. There are losses. There is a pandemic, there are political issues, there's personal problems with another person. There are stressors, there are challenges, but they need not land on us in a way that is experienced as stressful. Second distinction is between challenges faced with negative emotion or challenges faced with positive emotion. And it seems to me that if a person can face their challenges, with some authentic positive emotion, maybe with some frazzledness and low grade anxiety around the edges, to be sure. But in the core, there can be a sense of enthusiasm, loving relatedness with other people, a larger frame of gratitude, perspective and clarity that's reassuring and calming that you're here in, in this podcast, for example, to make your offering as best you can. And after that, it's out of your hands. When we bring those qualities to bear, it seems to me we can face our challenges without being penetrated by toxic stress
2: that is absolutely right on so this aspect you talk about holding on to some positive during stress of course we're feeling some at stake and so we're at being activated and having having some anxiety some worry like all of that, we embrace that. That's what triggers our adrenal. So it's not that we can go through stress without any of those kind of motivating performance, anxiety-related thoughts, but it's holding on to hope, to possibility of growth, of positive outcomes, feeling enthusiastic, feeling energetic, all of that positive aspect of this kind of challenge orientation is really important. We've studied it super up close. Like in the lab, we stress people out and we monitor those positive feelings throughout the stress experience. And when people hold on to them even just a bit, they actually have less of an inflammatory stress response. So this whole kind of mind-body complex is really sensitive and tuned into like, are we truly threatened or is this part of our positive stress growth, our performance, our survival, our thriving.
0: So you're highlighting there a way that we can respond to stress. And I think that you referred to it here as the challenge orientation, which is also the way that you refer to it in your book. And then that's distinct from a threat response to stress, which is essentially where those those primal mechanisms are activated, where we feel like our life is in danger or we feel like a challenge exceeds our ability to deal with it. Is that a fair distinction?
2: Yes, yes.
0: Great. Great. And it's kind of all well and good to refer to something as like, oh, well, if you just have a more positive mindset about it, you'll be able to face this stressor more easily. But that's often quite difficult for people to do in practice. So are there cues that you give people, whether it's like in the lab or out in the world, that help them move more into that challenge orientation towards stress?
2: Yes, absolutely. What we're saying to ourselves is so important, whether we believe it or not, really just coaching ourselves through it. So one thing Rick said is, doing the best I can, and I can't do better than that. That kind of really acknowledging you only have so much control in the moment that you'll get through this. Other ways of distancing yourself from that the intense threat that our body feels is understanding this too will pass, asking, will this really affect me in a month from now? or in five years from now. So that kind of perspective taking calms our body too and helps us really process stress and and not keep it alive and ruminate over it. So all of those different mental techniques, there's a lot we can say to ourselves. I call them stress shields, just by arming ourselves with these positive thoughts leading up to a stressor. And then what Rick talks about so much, being able to have the kindness and the self-compassion during the experience it can change everything you know it can really soften our extra layer of stress or beating up on ourselves so in buddhism there's the story of there's you know the dukkha there's adversity and it's inherent in life and then there is what rick said is there's the response to the whatever's happening in the external world is what we control and that is the second arrow So the first arrow happens to everyone. The second arrow is more what we make of it. Are we throwing arrows at ourselves so that we're stressed about stress or are we able to temper that and just let our body and our mind go through it knowing that we'll survive, that we've been here a thousand times.
0: Thinking about the different ways that stress can show up for people, there are acute moments of intense stress, right? Whether it's You're driving a car and somebody in the next lane does something kind of crazy and it freaks you out, or you're in an intense moment with a loved one, you're having a parenting challenge, whatever it might be. But one of the things that you've really highlighted is the effect that chronic stress can have on us. And this is often low-grade persistent stress that just exists inside of our lives. And one of the insights that I took out of your book and from your work more broadly is the long-term negative impact that that sort of chronic stress can have and particularly the ways in which even when we think that we are resting and recovering from this chronic stress, we often aren't actually. The way that I thought about it myself was like how much of my rest time involves looking at a screen of one kind or another and am I really resting when I'm doing it? And I would love if you could just unpack that a bit for people because that was so insightful for me.
2: Yeah, you described it so well how much true rest do we really get? Yeah. And we are used to having peak stressors and then recovery in our the evolutionary body that we inherited. But what we do with our minds, of course, is to carry it around with us everywhere and unconsciously. So a question to ask yourself is, how much are you carrying right now in your body? So the body is holding a lot of stress just with tension and tightness. And we can look at that and ask ourselves, what might we identify? What it is that we're carrying? Sometimes it's uncertainty, anxiety, or uncertainty, stress, which is very vague and pervasive, but we don't know how things will go. We don't know how tomorrow will go. And so we kind of brace up against that, trying to control the future or solve problems, even in, when, when we're not aware of it. So just asking yourself, What are you feeling uncertain about right now? What are your expectations of how things need to go today? And if you can name those, you can actually celebrate that. We don't know. And that's okay. We can actually let go of the baggage, be okay in this moment without trying to solve problems and hold it in our body.
1: One of the things that has been kind of the case for me on my own journey over the last sort of 50 years, it's so interesting as someone who's exposed to a lot of highfalutin, high-end research and thinking about all this territory is how much over time I find myself coming home to very simple, sort of homespun, intimate, gentle practices of things like comfort, reassurance, relief in the present, the feeling of being basically all right, right now in the present. And I think that the degree to which we can build up traits of that, right? We can move from states to traits by taking in the good through positive neuroplasticity, et cetera, that becomes increasingly internalized, then more and more we're able to move through life with an inner gyroscope or a different metaphor, a deep keel in the water, so that, yeah, the waves of life, they just come. <laughs> they keep on coming, don't they? But deep in the core of your being, you feel you feel calmed, you feel reassured, you know, you feel at home in yourself, you're in your own body, it's okay. It's simple practices like that. So, A, I wonder what you think about that, and B, how you might connect that with positive changes, even at the cellular, if not genetic level, based on growing those trait capacities, building capacity inside, uh, so that we can deal with challenges without getting stressed by them.
2: Mm -hmm. So first of all, what do I think of that? My body, thought a lot of that. It became totally relaxed as you were describing comfort, ease, relaxation. These are states, gentle states that we can foster. And I just was relaxed hearing about them. (laughs) And I couldn't (laughs) agree more. We think that we need such sophisticated teachings and mental work that takes effort when really It turns out that if we can use our sensory gates, we can anchor immediately in many different ways. So what I mean by that is when you use the word comfort, our body responds to signals of safety because that means that we can relax. It's okay to relax. We can feel ease. And so that might be a comforting blanket. Grownups are wearing, there's companies selling weighted blankets now. We use them for kids who are sensitive in the sensory, sensory integration way, but it turns out, wow, we still have these bodies with these sensory gates and we can use the body. We have this whole nervous system in the body. And it's not only that there's nothing wrong with using it, we should be using this whole set of ways to find ease through our body. So nature is one changing the environment so that we're seeing beauty and awe and that's signaling safety to us. Well, of course, meditation uses our sensory gates and that helps us ground and get out of our worrying self-referential negative mind. But things like aromatherapy and dimming lights and music, those are all powerful ways that we can get into this deep rest state. Forrest was saying is like, am I really relaxed? Why not have the corner of the house or a conditioned set of rituals that like just bring us to that state quickly? So our self-talk is one, but we can also use all these sensory gates as well.
1: Do you want to add, Alyssa, some of the effects of this that you found literally at the cellular, if not even genetic level?
2: The cells care about safety. And so when we think about like the two driving motivational forces in our body. Of course, there's fear and anxiety, and that's about our safety, protecting our safety, and then noting when we're safe, which really is about love, connection, and that kind of self-reassurance, self-love, self-compassion. Those feelings allow us to turn off our stress programming, our stress gene expression, which is otherwise could be in a constant worry. And when we can turn off the cell processes that are basically saying there might be danger out there, so we need to pump up the immune system and other stress defenses, then we can actually restore in our cells as well. We can turn on housekeeping functions. We can clean up debris. We can repair DNA. So all of that only happens when we feel these rest states. It happens during good quality sleep, and it happens during any contemplative practice. And of course, relaxation, but we could do better than relaxation. We can get to deep restoration.
0: I think the biological part of this is so interesting, just for me personally. And just as you were talking about the value of deep rest states, you mentioned very early on in the conversation, we just kind of skimmed by it because we got to, okay, what can we do about this very rapidly? That it's small, short-term bursts of stress that are manageable can actually have a positive effect for us, maybe even a positive effect on on our bodies, on our physical forms. And you said autophagy, I think was the word that you Uh used there. Would you mind explaining that
2: to people? Yes. Autophagy.
0: Autophagy. Okay. There we go. For a
2: decade, I said autophagy because I only read it. Now it's popular.
0: I was the kid when I was five, I was reading the books that were like way above my speaking level. I tried to say the words to my parents and it was always a mess. So I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> autophagy. See, it's okay. true, actually. Really true.
2: <laughs> yeah. There's these little organelles and cells that are like Pac-Man and they just clean up drunk. We have Something you know called lipofusin, dark stuff that accumulates with age, and if we give ourselves a, a boost with this positive stress, then these little Pac-Men go crazy, cleaning up the cell, rejuvenating it, making it be able to function better, making it younger. And one of the ways we, of course, know that exercise does that. Exercise is positive stress. Brief, intense exercise is kind of in its purest form what we think of as hormetic stress, this manageable short-term burst that we recover from. But lots of what contemplative and wisdom practices do this fitness to the nervous system that's not necessarily aerobic activity Mm -hmm. like exercise, Mm -hmm. extreme breathing, hot sauna, cold plunge, ocean ice, back and forth, hot, cold. Those are all like beautiful for our cells for the hormetic stress and the cleanup process. And we get that kind of boost of like, of feeling ease, feeling like our stress baseline is now moved. Our threshold is now so high that we can't get jolted and, and triggered as easily.
0: What are the, because this all this all sounds like a wonderful thing. What are the practical consequences for people of a biological system that's chronically Overactivated versus one that receives these more short term bursts of manageable stress. Like, what are the, what's the range that people can get to with either more positive stress coping or more problematic stress coping?
2: It's a really good question. Yeah. And as a researcher, I don't have many answers for you. We haven't really explored in humans what's the right dose and frequency and what's safe and so it really takes personal experimenting you know i think there's a lot of yoga practices and yoga breathing that are good examples of how people can push themselves toward discomfort and then recover and have shavasana states like within that same period deep rest
1: when i think about these um, medicinal <laughs> bursts <laughs> first we have to recover from them we have to have a period of recovery very important and second that the discomfort level is tolerable. Yeah. And they don't obviously re traumatize us or trigger us. Okay. Get that part. And then I'm just kind of mulling this a little bit. It seems to me that there is the category of brief, moderate, experienced stress where a person does feel stressed, but they get through it, they succeed at it. So that's another very important dimension. They're not defeated around something. They actually succeed at that public speaking event or that podcast interview or that you know effort on a rock climb, in my case. say, But it also seems to me, tell me what you think about it, that there's a category of intense, even potentially disruptive experiences for a person that are not experienced as stressful at the time and yet have this beneficial lasting effect.
0: Could you give an example here, Dad, of what you're referring to?
1: Like, could you yeah. paint a picture? Yeah, do you
2: mean yeah. in the body or psychologically?
1: Either. So let's mm-hmm. say in the body, I can imagine, like you said about exercise, I don't feel stressed when I'm doing the last three repetitions, let's say, of lifting a weight on you know, my garage gym, say. Or if I'm uh, rock climbing and it is true that my hands are hurting, my feet are hurting, my knees are getting scraped. I don't feel stressed, but man, is it intense. And so I'm just kind of wanting to mark that maybe there are experiences that do feel stressful that are brief, we succeed at them, and we recover from them, alongside other kinds of experiences that don't feel stressful and yet are also intense and demanding. Are these distinctions meaningful? What do you think about them?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think the, you know, we're talking about Titrating, like nuanced, exact. How much do you feel threat when you're rock climbing? Because if you're confident and you're not thinking, I actually one little slip and, you know, I could really hurt myself, then you're just, you're in flow state and you're in, I would say that's kind of an ideal positive hormetic stress state where everything's aligned, your mind, your body's working together. And that's exhilarating. Now, the, the mindset that can go along with something like extreme breathing or cold shower is something we can actually control and manipulate to get more to that, more of that flavor of uniformly positive stress rather than so mixed. And that is something worth thinking about, which is how do you relax into discomfort?
1: Or further, I'm wondering, is joyfulness itself a factor and the hermetic benefit.
2: Very interesting. My gut reaction, and I'm thinking of the Wim Hof Method since we've been studying that, is that you need to trust that this is good for your body to really benefit. You have to have some some belief, and you don't have to love it. So I do not like hyperventilating and then holding my breath. The breath holds a little more pleasant, but I like how I feel afterward. and what we have found is that you know some people don't like the positive stress. And they're like, wait, if hot sauna and cold are both going to give me a hormetic stress boost, I'm just going to stay in the sauna. <laughs> I don't want the, <laughs> you know, the stress of cold. Like, why do I need both? And it's probably better to get, you know, exercise the nervous system and get both is, is my short answer. But what we've learned from the Wim Hof method, even though people can tolerate it and don't always love it, is that the positive emotion comes afterward. That when we, so we measure these daily diaries and every night for weeks, we ask them, identify, you know, how much joy do you feel, anxiety, fear, peace, et cetera. And the hormetic stress and particularly this breathing techniques spikes positive effect. People feel mm. more positive afterward compared to meditation, actually. I think it's more the high arousal positive that's happening.
1: So you're talking about positive, intense, positive emotion as a result. I'm also calling it out potentially as a factor going in, Mm -hmm. including, for example, another wild card would be vulnerable, open self-expression with another person. That's a different kind of rock climbing, as it were. Uh And it's a challenge, right? But if a person went into it with a kind of exuberance, exhilaration, even then I'm imagining that that intense positive effect coming into the situation would have a kind of protective effect and maybe, in part, turbocharge the hermetic effects. I'm just spitballing here, as Forrest would put it.
2: Yeah. I love this question. I feel like we need to, again, think about safety. So we talked about telling yourself this, my body loves us, it's safe for my body, when we're doing physical stressors, going into an environment when there can be true, genuine sharing of vulnerability, you have to feel, you have to build that container of safety. And with that, it can be exhilarating and healing. And that exchange between two people, you know when it's happened and you know that, energy exchange of having that common common humanity or just compassion for each other, that can be exhilarating.
0: There's a great metaphor in your book that I think really summarizes a lot of this really beautifully, which is that basically when a lion is chasing a gazelle, they're both stressed, but they're stressed for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think that that actually encapsulates a lot of what you're talking about here, Dad, where when you're lifting the last couple of reps, you're in pursuit mode you are pursuing the completion of your exercise. When you're rock climbing, you're pursuing the top of the hill, whatever it is. You're pursuing. You are a predator in that moment. Your prey drive has not been activated in the same way. So you might be experiencing some level of existential threat that you're concerned that you're going to like fall off the rock to your death, but I know you. I don't think you're thinking that way. And I think that that like predator-prey Kind of conception is a big part of this whole thing because mm-hmm. that's so wired into us on like such a deep level.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, for us, and it brings us to the chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, like that—the reward that you can get from climbing the peak, scaling it, or from getting that meal.
1: But if I could just add this, and here I defer to the expert in the room, you know, Alyssa, not me. I don't. I'm not sure that the lion is stressed, and the reason I want to make a point here is just because there's a high release of cortisol and adrenaline, and just because the sympathetic nervous system is in overdrive. That's also the case when someone is dancing with joy at their wedding, right? It's also the case, uh, I was just watching some skiers, because of course I'm a maniac for YouTube videos of mountain climbing and stuff like that in Norway, going down this incredibly steep chute, risking their life at every turn, and they were exhilarated you bet their heart was pounding, you bet there was cortisol and adrenaline in their body, and you bet their sympathetic nervous system was kicked into gear, but I wouldn't say they were stressed. I don't Mm -hmm. think they would say they were stressed either. And I think it's Mm -hmm. really helpful for people to realize that the key distinction between stress and not stress is negative affect, right? It's not about arousal per se, it's about negative affect. And you can even have people who are, you know, frozen, with excessive parasympathetic activation. So they're in a low arousal state, Mm -hmm. but they're gripped with negative affect, which has stressful consequences in terms of allostatic load and stuff like that. All right, what do you think about all that?
2: No, it's a fabulous point. And the athletes and performance artists and people who do these feats that they love are really experts in what we might call stress resilience, for not having those threat responses during this, for having the positive affect and the the anticipation of reward.
0: That I think people might be familiar with, like there's a difference between physiological stress and psychological stress, and that's kind of what I think you're uh-huh. pointing to here, Dad. That's interesting. Is that because the skier is absolutely physiologically stressed? Like in terms of the definition of that word that we use, there are the the release of various things that are causing the body to do stuff. They're they're in total pursuit of the bottom of that hill. They want to win <laughs> the medal, whatever it is. They, they want to not get hit by an avalanche. Like their their body they want is to avoid going, my dude. death. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're like let's not act like the body is not activated. But to yeah. your point, they might not be yeah. psychologically stressed. Ah, they're not yeah. they're not prey. They're still, you know, in pursuit. Yeah. But anyways, maybe I maybe That's I'm great. overreaching here. What do you think about this, Alyssa?
2: Yeah, I mean, the point that posit- negative emotion differentiates these, you know, yeah. positive stress states is a really great point. And then I would just take it further that, you know, some of the negative emotions are really helpful. And so, you know, really looking at the specific emotions is probably helps us understand more these states of positive thrill, stress, flow states versus stress when there's worry, threat, loss still involved in it. So you're going to have more of a mix.
0: Early on in the conversation, you mentioned something about getting more comfortable with uncertainty and acceptance practices and things like that. And I know that that's a big part of what you've been exploring recently, but you're just a a very well-rounded expert in all of the various things that people can do to either turn the more problematic versions of stress into the more useful ones or just manage stress a little bit better in their everyday lives. And so I'm gonna ask you a really broad question here. I'm just wondering what's standing out to you these days as like the important stuff.
2: So- about uncertainty stress. I mean, I, I certainly, I think it's so fundamental. We all feel it. It is inherent that we have uncertainty of our future. We've always had that. And then we do have more volatile uncertainty. We do have a world right now that has more sudden dramatic risks, traumas, change with climate, with governments. So that is, a bit of a new challenge for these bodies still living on this earth that didn't expect that type of added layer of existential stress and, and quick change. And of course the pandemic we just went through, there's no reason that should be the last that we experience in our lives. And of course the climate crisis will, the traumas will get more frequent. So how do we, how do we live our lives knowing that? That is something that I have been Watching, learning, and listening for several years, how different experts take that challenge, and I, I, what I see is that there's a lot of a natural process of wavering between coming to hope, resilience, purpose. This is how we can live in this moment of of real adversity when our actions matter. To feeling the sadness of the reality of the nature that has already had decay and devastation. And so it's a process. We're never going to be fully balanced and hopeful and go forward without feeling waves of sadness and hopelessness too. You know, I think that I rely on the positive emotion contagion these days. I love hearing, for example, Joanna Macy, who is really one of the most joyful people. And it, it's helpful that she also feels that the presence of being alive and being together is part of the magic and miracle of this moment, whether the great great unraveling or the great turning and the balance of those, regardless of how those forces of decay and and change and transformation are interacting and which is gonna win, it's this being, the miracle of this being human together and trying to do our best in our short lives. So yeah, what about you, Forrest and Rick?
0: What what helps me cope with like the more existential aspects yes, of stress yes. or I think that this is pretty consistent with some of what you've explored in your research, which is just a bit what we were talking about earlier, those more like eudaimonic values and underlying feeling of purpose in life, accepting that Things may or may not turn out in the big picture the way that I would prefer them to turn out, but I can still do what I can do in my little local section of the cosmos, even if that section is just like between my ears, to have a positive impact or a positive stance or cope with things as best as I can. Uh, Something I've really been thinking about recently is, is getting a bit better at stepping back from situations and going how much of this really had to do with me. And how much of this was about a million other things that I had no control over at all, including little local things, like a tiff with a friend, or a bumpy moment with my family, or somebody getting mad at me when I'm driving or something mm-hmm. like that. Like we can take responsibility, and we can also give it up. And I think that that's a really big part of the acceptance practice that you were talking about as mm-hmm. being so fundamental.
2: Yeah. that's so beautiful, Forest. Thank you. I think coming back to what we can control is absolutely critical. And that starts with the inner work. And we're not really going to be able to do much if we are feeling so stressed or hopeless every day. So I think the, the coming back to practices are just so, so critical right now.
1: Building on what you just both said, I think tolerating helplessness has been a big one for me because I'm definitely somebody who to a fault is determined and has a strong sense of agency. And it's been actually really useful to just recognize that I'm just helpless about many, many things. So tolerating that experience, so I'm not stressed by it. It's an unpleasant experience, but it need not be a stressful one. And that distinction between unpleasant and stress is of course really, really critical. The other thing was implicit in what both of you said, the sense of connecting with others, including about climate. And that's true in general, that when we feel that our stresses are shared with others or that we are with others or others are with us, that's tremendous balm to the stressed heart, right? To feel that others are with you and care about you, they see you, they're even bearing witness to this burdens of stress that you carry, even if they can't do anything about it, the sheer fact that they're bearing witness and not minimizing or dismissing stresses is really important. And I think that's a very important thing for us individually to do with others, to bear witness to their burdens, their losses, the injustices, serious, structural, generational, millennial. I don't mean the current generation, I mean for millennia. for <laughs> thousands of years. Yeah. yeah. There learn. have been structural, systemic sources of injustice yeah. that profit the few at the cost of the many, factually, no denying it. And I think one of the things that that takes me to about climate change is that the incentives for entrenched forces of wealth and power to maintain the status quo of carbon emissions are extraordinary they're enormous and we must bring to bear even greater countervailing forces nonviolently toward that and one way to do that is to join in common cause with others around the world around the common good in terms of the climate crisis and And our moral duties to not just dump our waste in the street or our waste in the sky so that it will harm generations for thousands of years to come, right? And to have a sense of common cause with others about that. So that sense of common cause also is a major relief of stress. To relate this to stress relief and resilience, which is our main topic here, that feeling of being part of a movement that's making real stuff happen and I grew up in the 60s and 70s and I felt a part of, in some ways, part of an environmental and civil rights and women's rights movement with a broader cultural openness where there's a sense of common cause, common purpose, common effort with other people. That's a major source of stress relief. When you look at people, for example, who've gone through traumatic or really challenging experiences in combat, one of the major findings is that what makes the difference for people who walk away with PTSD or not, among other physiological variables, is number one, sense of uh, common cause with others and a sense of virtuous mission.
2: Absolutely. And what Forrest said is also true, which is you do what you can touch and control locally. That's what makes us feel efficacious.
1: I reflect a lot about this line from T.S. Eliot in Ash Wednesday, teach us to care and not to care, right? And I think it's really helpful for people to appreciate that they can be energized without feeling stressed. They can be relaxed without feeling paralyzed. And they can hold things in that frame of equanimity that's about the second, not to care, while still doing everything they can every day.
2: And I will just add to that, it's all a practice. One of the ways that I think about stress, managing stress, changing a relationship with stress is just noticing when it's becoming a dominant force in our day or others Mm -hmm. around us, we don't have to live like that. But it does take building these supports, the daily rituals for comfort, for looking at what we're holding right now that we don't have to be carrying and letting ourselves go back to that place of ease, of love, connecting with ourself, connecting to the people around us. It is fundamental.
1: Forrest, can I ask you this? I'm, I think, older than you, Alyssa. I'll probably be gone. Yeah. Forrest, you're a younger person, and you are going to live into a future on planet mm-hmm. Earth sure. that most most likely just from what's already baked into the cake is going to have some serious issues by the time you're my age or you know your children are my age so you have you have more futurity you have more of a future and i just kind of wonder how you think about that when you think about the world you'll be living in 40 years from now uh, believe it or not do you take that into account do you feel stressed by it for me, it's not a source of major
0: existential stress personally. It's a big source of existential stress on a global level because my my personal view of this is that what will likely happen is what's always happened throughout human history, which is that poor people will bear the brunt of it and the not poor people will be largely insulated. And that's what I think is going to happen. So I feel enormous... Compassion and grief, not so much for my children, but for the children of somebody who I don't know who's currently living in Sub Saharan Africa or who's living in rural Southeast Asia, whose way of life will be irrevocably changed by everything that's happening. And individually, in a kind of profoundly cynical way, I look at my own life and my children's life and I go, well, it'll be affected, it'll be made weird. But will probably be insulated from a lot of this, which is itself a a very dark commentary on a lot of what's going on in the world. So that's how I think about a lot of it, yeah.
2: Let me just point out how much narrative matters. It's almost like a life and death matter. So, you know, force narrative is not catastrophic to his life on Earth. And so he's able to have a sense of ease. To you know, separate. I control this. I don't control that, and I and my lineage will be okay. And that shapes how you're viewing and coping. And yeah, totally. Then there are many people your age, and especially maybe younger, who have catastrophic narratives, and they're not coping well. They do not see their future in that way. And sure, you know how is that? How is the catastrophic narrative going to create yeah. more suffering, harm, gloom, doom, self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what I worry about.
0: And just to highlight part of what you're saying here, Alyssa, I could be totally wrong.
2: Oh, I know. I mean, and it's, it's, and we it's, know, and it's worthwhile we yeah, know. to have.
0: But I think that part of it also is the is the acknowledgement and the ability to acknowledge. You know, I could be totally wrong, mm-hmm. yeah. and to and to be at peace with that a little bit. And I don't mean that necessarily from like a deep. Place of practice just from a very practical place of like, you know, I don't who knows? And and to be okay with that. Today we talked with Dr. Alyssa Apple about the science of stress. And particularly we focused on two things. First, what we can do to limit the negative impacts of chronic stress. And then second, what we can do to actually make stress work for us in more positive ways. We skimmed over this in the early part of the conversation, largely because most people understand that stress is not great for you. Chronic stress is connected to a wide variety of health problems, uh, heart disease, depression, even accelerated aging, which is something that Alyssa's really studied. And a lot of the basic advice that people receive about managing stress is pretty simplistic. You know, just remove your stressors, learn strategies to help you relax, add a little bit more life to your work-life balance, go to sleep earlier, eat healthier food, use less social media, you know, whatever. But for starters, a lot of those pieces of advice are not available to everyone. They're fairly privileged in their nature. And then... Second, stressors are an inherent part of life, and one of the big things that we explored during the conversation is what we can do to respond to those stressors a little bit differently so that they don't turn into the problematic forms of stress. And one of the things that we talked about for a fair amount of the conversation was how our psychological relationship with what's going on in our lives can affect how stressful situations end up landing on us. The example that Rick gave was, you know, when he's rock climbing, he's physically stressed, but he wouldn't describe himself as being stressed. And the big difference here is that he's not adding a lot of negative mood to the equation. He's in pursuit, right? He's like the lion chasing the gazelle. He wants to reach the top of the mountain. And that feels really different from when we are under threat. And Alyssa's language for this is the difference between a challenge approach to stress, that first case, versus the threat response to stress, which is that second case. Again, are you more like the lion or are you more like the gazelle? Now, really interestingly, those more, maybe call them positive forms of stress, those times when we are in pursuit mode or we're building resilience, where we're exposed to manageable doses of stress that actually has a really positive impact on the body. It's called autophagy. It's this natural process of regeneration that actually occurs at the cellular level. And the person who discovered this process won the Nobel Prize, so it was a pretty big deal. And we can actually build up our resilience by exposing ourselves to short-term bursts of manageable stress. And Alyssa gave a couple of examples of this. One example was high-intensity interval training, other forms of exercise that amp up the body over the short term but are quite manageable in the long term, then things like the Wim Hof method, hot and cold plunges, all of these various ways that we can expose the body to physiological stress without adding a lot of negative emotional affect, which was the key distinction that Rick kept on coming back to. There were a few other things that Alyssa highlighted throughout the conversation that are particularly important if you're trying to limit the negative impacts of stress. First, this idea of a fundamental acceptance shift. We need to turn off our threat response to uncertainty. Life is inherently uncertain, and also the brain hates uncertainty. So a big part of the equation here for people is a shift in mindset to accept uncertainty as just the defining condition of our lives instead of fighting against it or feeling threatened by it. And one of the great ways to do this is by being very present-focused. And there are a lot of great practices, like meditation, that bring us into an increasingly felt sense of connection and contact with the present moment. Because the reality is that while there is plenty of stress in the course of our normal everyday lives, a lot of stress lives in either the remembered past or our imagined future. And unfortunately, that's often the stress that we can't do anything about. There was a really interesting section in Alyssa's book that stood out to me. She referenced a study that found that when people were anticipating upcoming stressors, so they were worrying, it spiked their negative emotions, just as it would if they were experiencing a stressor in the here and now, right? If the event had actually occurred. But if the event did occur that they were worrying about, they were no better at dealing with it. In other words, their worrying hurt them in the moment, and then it didn't actually accomplish anything if the problematic event came to pass. Two other things that were really important. First, a sense of meaning and purpose. Feeling like you're doing something that matters or you are part of a larger whole, or that the stressful occurrence in your life, like say raising a kid, is connected to something that you really do care deeply about. And this can also help buffer us from existential forms of stress, like we were talking about with regards to the climate crisis. If people feel like they are part of a movement, part of a collective that is actually achieving something— It buffers you against some of the existential forms of dread because there's this feeling that, hey, I might actually be able to make this thing better in the future, and even if my one life is small, I am part of a much bigger whole. And then second, actually resting. In Alyssa's book, she refers to this as blue mind as opposed to green mind or yellow mind or red mind. And the idea is simple but really powerful— when we're resting, when we think of what we do as, as rest or recovery or recreation, a lot of the time we're not actually resting. Like I think about myself. How much of my time, how much of your time, if you're listening, is spent looking at a screen when you are supposedly resting? And we know from the research that a lot of the time if we're looking at a screen, the brain is not really resting. It's not really metabolizing our experiences or our stressors or anything like that. It's just another form of activity. And yeah, it can be a pleasant form of activity. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to be done with this interview and like never jump on my computer again when I want to do some recreation. The point is that it, it's just it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not like the only thing that you should be doing, particularly if you have a very stressful life. There are other practices that are truly more restorative for us. Again, Alyssa's new book is The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. If you're interested in learning more about it or purchasing it, I've included a link to the book in the description of today's podcast. If you've gotten this far and you have somehow not subscribed to the podcast yet, please subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out. You could also leave a rating, a positive review. That helps us out. And hey, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast, And for the cost of just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you will get a bunch of bonuses in return. Things like expanded show notes, ad-free versions of the episodes, transcripts of everything that we do. And uh, yeah, sometimes access to some additional bonuses as well. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon.